Welcome to Saga Thing, where we've been putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial for 100 episodes. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this this is actually our 100th episode, John. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I You know, I, I kind of knew generally that it was <laughs> it was coming, but now it's here. I, did, I wasn't ready. I'm, gl- I'm so glad I have a beer in yeah. my hand. So, so you're saying you didn't get me a gift? Uh, I got you the gift of my virtual presence. <laughs> well, that is a virtual delight. That's a uh, present of sorts. Yes. Uh, I mean, I know people uh, <laughs> listening to this can't see the banner and general festoonery we've put up to celebrate the occasion. Uh, but I appreciate your surprise. We've put up. Well, <laughs> uh, and your non-existent party hat is a really nice touch. Yeah, right. Yeah, I see you've uh, in, you've hired an entire brass band to stand silently behind you while we record this. That's really nice. <laughs> sure. I, they're remarkably quiet and yeah. very disciplined. It's, uh, al- it's almost like they're entirely made up for a bit you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we each commemorate the 100th in our yes. own way, and I do it by antagonizing you. Yes, and I'm celebrating with an excellent glass of beer a few more chapters of a great saga, and a few pieces of utterly irrelevant trivia. Well, I'm enjoying two of those things. Uh, well, then sit back and sip your pint while I share with you that Saga Thing has been around since September 2013, which means we're just coming up on our sixth anniversary. In that time, we've produced 100 episodes, which works out to about 17 episodes a year. Well, it- it feels like more to me. 17 a year? <laughs> I mean, granted, that's more than, than one a month. But uh, sure. I guess it was at one every three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're slackers. I don't know. Um, I mean, but one every three weeks, given what we, you know, I think God, yeah. it's all right. I, it's not the every two weeks we were hoping for, but it's all right. right. I think, yeah. Originally, we thought we'd be producing about a 30 or 40 minute episode every two weeks. And so we've been a little yeah, off we, that pace. I think we originally thought we'd need one episode per saga, which was way off. Yes. We were so young. I just I'll point out you were older then than I am now. So <sighs> cruel, technically <laughs> accurate, but cruel, sir. A little bit. <laughs> My point was that our episodes have actually averaged seventy-seven minutes. Yeah. Uh, so we've produced more than one hundred and twenty-seven hours worth of our blathering on. Mm-hmm. I think we should claim credit for two hundred episodes, Ooh. according to our original projection of thirty-minute episodes. Two hundred. Happy two hundredth episode. Hey, that was fast. Cheers, John. Yeah, cheers. You also had a uh, a production baby. Is that what they call it? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, my second son. My second son who was starting kindergarten in about a week was born a few months after we started the podcast. Which is, to be fair, one of the reasons we've never really managed a regular production schedule. You've got two young ones. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Along with four other reasons, right? Which is my other son and your three kids. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think all, of, well, two of my kids were in elementary school and now I've got, uh, mm-hmm. both of those are in high school. So, uh, good Lord. Yeah. So we got that and uh, the day jobs and our remarkably patient sure. wives. We've got a lot going on. So, so patient. One every three and, uh, and you've moved about. You've moved from Ohio to Mississippi during the 2018 summer hiatus. How's oh, that going? That was a surprise. That was a very pleasant <laughs> surprise. We're we're settled in. We're very happy. We hope to stay here as long as possible. Oxford is a great town. Excellent. So let's see. Uh, and having now added Mississippi to the list, Saga Thing has been recorded in, I think the current count is, six states and six countries. Six? I mean, the states I get, but six countries. What kind? Of, yeah, you I and so, I yeah. recorded in Iceland, uh, I know, uh, but I don't recall recording with you in other uh, locales. I I uh, went on a trip to Canada a few years ago and and uh, recorded an interview with Loretta Decker, 
Uh, ah, the Longsall Meadows one. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, we hit the uh, other extreme of Canada with mm-hmm. uh, Stephen and Patricia when the archery episode. They were in Vancouver. That's I correct. Think. That's right. Yeah, two ends of Canada still only count as one country. Though, uh, they're so very different, uh, though. It might as well be two. There you go. I think a lot of Canadians would think of it that way. Uh, and I had a conversation with Kat Yarman. In Norway, yes. And I interviewed Charlotte Hayden Stanner Johnson in Sweden. So. So we've got the Scandinavian countries covered, don't we? Yes, we do. And uh, just recently, we recorded a saga brief on the Battle of Brunenborough with the fellows from Rex Factor, who, of course, were recording from England. Okay, so a lot of interview – well, I shouldn't say a lot, but a handful of interviews with people in other countries. Do we want to recount those as whole or half? Because we were technically still sitting in our country. Technically, the ambient noise and air of the other country (laughs) was heard in our podcast – it counts. Gotcha. Okay, so six countries—that's impressive. <laughs> when uh, is it? Is it too early to start our world tour? I can I can design a T-shirt. Uh, I think maybe we should plan on visiting each other first. Oh, uh, okay. Well, why don't you come down here? Oxford is is lovely this time of year. Very very humid. It's in the nineties. Uh, come oh, on over. Delightful. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna pass. Um, <laughs> I'm comfy where I am. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just wanted to say it's bizarre we've been doing this for this long and we are still nowhere near finished. Well, I I think some people would say it's bizarre that we do this at all. Mm, Fair. The Icelandic what, they say? Um, But, you know, (laughs) if you really think about it, we're not doing that badly. We are we're already more than two thirds of the way through Ale Saga. So that's something. And this is what, Mm -hmm. our 25th saga? We've only got. uh, Yeah, I think that's right. 15 to go. Uh, 15 to go. Yeah. But uh, since we're not done with this one yet, we're going to be carrying on with Ale's adventures. Uh, but we did just briefly want to say thank you all for listening to this very odd podcast. Absolutely, yes. Thank you. Uh, and thank you especially for spreading the word, uh, telling your coolest friends about us, because we don't really spend any money promoting this at all. We wouldn't even know how to begin promoting a podcast yep. like this, nor do we have the My money to do something. My best idea so far like is to shout out the window. Yes, right. So uh, thank you so much for all the work you've done for making this podcast viable. And uh, personally, as I often tell my students, uh, if I didn't have a venue for talking to people about books I love to read, I'd just be annoying random strangers in a bar somewhere with unsolicited literary analysis. So thank you, Andy, for saving the rest of the world from having to feign interest in me. (laughs) And thank you, the Saga Thing folk, for encouraging us and for sharing the podcast. It's It's a treat to do this and it's a treat to find people who want to hear it. Um, Speaking of which, Andy, what exactly is it we're doing this time? Well, we are going to be dealing with the aftermath of a couple of major events in Ail Scott the Grimson's life. And we're going to follow along as Ail once again takes to the seas. All right. Well, it seems to me like we need our customary recap of last episode's action. So I invite you to take off that non-existent party hat and get your notes ready. Because it's time to talk about... Last time on Ale Saga. Ale, mourning the untimely demise of his brother Thorolf, sought compensation from King Athelstan of England. And oh brother, did Athelstan deliver. Ale received two chests of silver and the promise of the king's friendship. And that's a coin that never loses its luster. Returning to Norway, Ale broke the news of Thorolf's death to Thorolf's widow, Asgerd. Then, encouraged by his chum Aaron Bjorn, Ale married Asgerd himself. The newlyweds... Scandalous. Oh, indeed. The newlyweds returned to Iceland to settle down with Ail's aging father, Scott Grimm. Some time later, Ail received word that Asgard's father, Bjorn the landowner, had died. Sad news. Sad indeed. But worse tidings were still to come. 
Asgard's brother-in-law, Berg Onan, laid claim to all Bjorn's inheritance on the ground that Asgard was illegitimate. Scandal. Mm, indeed. Eo raced back to Norway to offer an even-steven split of the loot. But Onan, secure in the knowledge of Queen Gunnild's favor, won the case in a clearly biased court. More scandal. Eil, mm. who barely escapes the court with his life, takes a more direct approach to giving Onan a dose of comeuppance. Ambushing and killing Berg Onan and his brother Had as a prelude to a slaughter that included Prince Ronvald, the son of Eric Bloodaxe, and Queen Gunild. Eil returns safely home after erecting a scorn pole. This <laughs> is <laughs> <Instead of> erecting. <laughs> and pole. You really shouldn't pause after the word erecting. It's awkward. I'll wait till after the pole's up. <laughs> after erecting a scorn pole against the king and queen. And the spirits of Norway. But later that same year, our hero suffered yet another loss with the death of Scott Grimm. Ale, now the last male of his line, buried his father and prepared to take control of the family home at Borgafjord. You know, there was actually quite a lot in that episode. Now, I, I, I don't feel quite as bad about how long it was. Yeah, we didn't even get to spend much time last episode talking about the death of Scott Legrim. Uh No, well, I mean, you got us talking about corpse doors instead. So, you know, what's to, what else do we got to say about it? Ah, you know, you know, Andy, it's a poor horse that blames the man who led it to the water. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I think that uh, works. So. The point... The, the point is that uh, Scott Legrim is positioned in this saga as an important man in the Icelandic settlement. The saga doesn't always treat him as being in the first rank of important people in the narrative, though. Well, I mean, Scott Legrim did a lot to shape the region of Iceland around Borgafjord. At first, he claimed the land, then he distributed most of it to his friends. Yeah, exactly. And those friends are having their own lives and their own adventures. Uh, some of those are covered in other sagas, but some of them continue to crop up as this saga continues. Like the, uh, the boys who Ail and Scotlagrim killed a few episodes back, who were both connected to people who'd come over with Scotlagrim. I was going to say, I thought, are they coming back? Because yeah. I thought they were dead. Well, those guys are dead, yes, but there'll be more. There are other people coming up in our next few episodes who also come from people that we might think of as the Scotlagrim folk. Scotlagrim folk? Some, you've spent too much time studying Cuthbert's cult to say something. You have your hobbies and I have mine. You named your dog Cuthbert. Well, yes, but it's a small dog. <laughs> With a powerful touch. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be a marking territory joke in there somewhere. <laughs> Feel free. Yeah. Anyway, it, it isn't just the people Scott Grimm has brought to the land. He's also been naming everything in the area, starting with Borg itself and extending all around the place. Yes, he's also been helping to establish a local economy and serving as an unofficial Gothi. But yeah, I mean, the naming stuff is important. So there's a section of the initial settlement chapters where Scott Legrim names a bunch of the area's landscape features. And we didn't, I don't think we yeah. talked on it much. Yeah. And I know you love this topographical stuff, so it's okay. Um, there was an article about this in Saga Book a few years back, right? Uh, it's called uh, Landscape Naming in the Landam Narratives or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, Naming the Landscape by Eleanor Baraclaw. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, that's a good resource. I, I, I've got it here. Um, all right, let me, I'll just pull it up in a second. Uh, okay, well, she talks about uh, Scott Grimm's naming of the area around Borgerfjord as kind of a claim of ownership, right? Uh, yeah. Like, like marking territory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like Cuthbert, your dog. <laughs> there we go. It's finally, yeah, I got it. Now, here's the here's the here's here's a good quote from it. You've been straining for a marking territory joke, haven't you? 
Uh, I think you're... Do- well, never mind. Um, now, here's the quote that I was trying to show you. Uh, it, it says, In a protracted episode, he, that is Scott Legrim, is depicted naming the natural features of the land, thus bringing it into his own frame of reference, and therefore control by bestowing identity upon it. Uh, so fairly typical settlement behavior, in other words. Mm-hmm. I mean, human beings always do this. Right? You move to a new place and... Pretty soon, you're thinking of the house on the corner as that house with all the loud dogs or the one with the weird sculptures in the yard. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way of thinking about it. Um, of course, there is an ulterior motive here as well. Uh, Bauerkloff says, mm-hmm. uh, a cynical reader might suspect that such place names were a convenient way of claiming ownership over the fertile fields and the whaling potential of the area. I mean, again, fairly typical settlement I behavior. think so, yeah. I named uh, that. Or at least it's mine. Right. <laughs> That's mine now. It's Scott Legrim's fields. Uh, but at least it's fairly typical behavior attributed to the settlers by their descendants. Sure. But you're a cynical reader, John. Well, it's a it's a logical conclusion to reach, really. I mean, Scott Legrim's descendants are important people in the Age of Saga writing. Mm-hmm. And we've said before that Snorri, I mean, the, the, the infamous Snorri, Sturluson, was living at Borg for a while after marrying into the family. There. Mm-hmm. The historian, or in this case, the pseudo-historian, can uh, really have a thumb on the scales of public opinion as to whose land is whose. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, there's the other possibility with uh, all the, the topographical stuff in the saga is that um, you've got a guy like Snorri mm-hmm. Sturluson living in the area and these places have names currently and he's he's giving a, a an origin story for the name, but he's making it up right. or, or drawing it from from legend rather than from, from actual history. There's nothing to say that Scott Legrim actually named these places. Um, but the right. the narrative provides a convenient point of origin for the the place names. Right. As Eil takes formal control of the farm at Borg, he's living, at least in this saga, he's living in a land shaped and named by his father. Scott Legrim may yeah. be dead and buried, but his memory lives on in the land. Much to uh, Eil's chagrin, I guess. Uh, but that does sound mm-hmm. poetic. I like it. Uh, but you know, but it also means that Eil, who didn't really get along with his father, is going to be a little restless whenever he spends too much time at Borg. Oh, now there's a segue. Yeah, you want to know what's happening this time? I do. Well, let's go. The winds of change are blowing in Norway, and they're blowing from the west. The youngest child of King Harold Fairhair, a boy named Haukon, had been tucked away and fostered in England, where he received a good education. Raised in the court of King Athelstan, Hauken grew into a righteous and intelligent young man. And when news of his father's death reached him, Hauken gathered his forces and set sail for Norway. As King Eric and Queen Gunnild begin plotting their revenge on Eil for the slaying of their son, Hauken arrives to challenge his elder brother for the Norwegian throne. Undercut by a nobility tired of his unjust and chaotic rule, the former King Eric soon found himself on a ship heading west with Norway at his back. Perhaps there was more to Eil's scornpole than met the eye. Before long, Eric establishes himself as the King of Northumbria in England. Ruling from York, he turns his eye toward a bright new future. But Gunnild has not forgotten her hatred of Eil's Scott the Grimson. She lays a curse on him that draws him away from Iceland toward the shores of Northumbria. Though his head may be ugly, Eil will have trouble keeping it on his shoulders 
if he crosses paths with Eric and Gunhild again. What will happen when Ael arrives in Gunhild's Northumbria? Who will come to his aid? And will he have the wit and wisdom to save his big ugly head? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ael Saga, chapter 60 to 65. There's a lot going on, obviously, uh, especially in the background with Hauken's uh, fosterage and his arrival in Norway. The saga doesn't touch much on that stuff, so we're going to focus on Ail's adventures in Northumbria and the repercussions of that. Let's just get right to it, why don't we? Well, we've already been talking for quite a while, so why not? <laughs> Part 31. A Wrong Turn. So as we said earlier, our story picks up in Norway in the same year that Skotlagrim dies. While Ael is taking his father's body out through a corpse door and burying him on an island, Eric and Gunnild are dealing with problems of their own in Norway. Eric's brother, Hauken, is challenging Eric's right to the throne, and he's able to collect a larger force than Eric has. So much larger that Eric and Gunnild are forced to flee Norway without even putting up a fight. Well, that was an abrupt end to their rule. Well, or long overdue. Again, our, our timeline's a little wonky here. Yeah, it is. And a large number of Eric's supporters travel with him, right? The, so the, the, there's like no battle. There's mm -hmm. nothing really to report beyond uh, they leave. They leave in good right. order, and they bring a lot of people with them. And right. uh, Ail's friend and in-law, Aaron Bjorn, is actually one of the men who leave with the royal couple because he's suddenly a favorite of theirs. You know, Arnbjorn's managed to maintain his good relations with Eric and Gunnil despite his allegiance to Ale. So much so that he's been named chieftain of all Fjord in the province and has served as a foster father to some of the king's children. That's a good position to be in. It is. And it's an impressive diplomatic feat for someone whose Icelandic buddy has kind of made it a life goal to infuriate this royal family. <laughs> infuriate at this point is, if anything, a little soft. Uh, Ale killed their son Ronvald last episode. Yeah. And didn't do much to hide his contempt for them. Yeah, the uh, the horse head on a pole was a pretty clear message. Yes, but I mean, he again, he killed their son. Mm -hmm. he, he wasn't going for subtle all the way around. Yeah, but this really hasn't affected Aaron Bjorn's relationship with the king. Remember, these two, Aaron Bjorn and Eric, have a long history. Eric was fostered by Earl Thorir, Aaron Bjorn's father. So Eric and Arnbjorn are actually foster brothers, and that's an important relationship and kind of explains the, the closeness that we're seeing now. Sure. Sure. Just ask Ale and his uh, foster sister slash sister-in-law slash wife about that kind of thing. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, but we, we've said before that Eric was closer to Arambjorn's father, Thorir, but there's still enough allegiance between them that Arambjorn has risen to his current status as Earl and as advisor to King. Right. So and Arambjorn, advisor to the King. Yeah. So Arambjorn sticks with Eric and Gunild and relocates with them all the way to England. Eric begins raiding in Scotland and Northumbria, making his way south toward English lands, and everywhere he goes, he's piling up successes. And it isn't long before King Athelstan hears about this and heads north with a military force. So Athelstan is somehow still king in Anglo-Saxon England, even though it's been well over a decade since Ale left him, and historically Athelstan only lived two years after the Battle of Brunenburg. Well, it's not the years in your life, Andy. It's the, it's the life in your years. Uh-huh. I haven't heard that in a while. Um, well, actually, I've never heard that, <laughs> to be honest with you. 
<laughs> but I like it. Uh, so yeah, Athelstan's packed about two decades worth of rule into two years. So he, I mean, he's doing a stellar job. So yeah, it's there life in his years. Uh, Very impressive. Well, all that, uh, all that extra experience clearly pays off because uh, he's able to negotiate a non-violent solution to his Norwegian infestation. Uh, mm. Eric and Gunnild are given Northumbria to rule on the understanding that they will be responsible for dealing with any aggression from Scotland. And that's not actually a bad deal, uh, except for the part where Eric and Gunnhild are, they already invaded, which is not cool. Yeah, but that's leading back to a whole conversation we had a couple episodes ago uh, during the saga brief on Brunenborough. The brief version is that this part is a kind of mix of history and invention, but it's mostly invention. Uh, I mean, neither Eric nor Athelstan are ever involved in anything like this. But for the purposes of Ale Saga, Eric and Gunnhild now rule Northumbria. Correct. And at least for now, Arnbjorn is their third wheel. There's something else. Can can Arnbjorn be a third wheel? Would he be a third oar? Like, how do you, in a sea voyage, how do you explain somebody coming along for the ride? Yes, I like that third oar. He's, uh, Arnbjorn's the third oar. <laughs> Um, no, but there's something else. Gunnild, as far as we know from other sagas, is a pretty accomplished sorceress. Mm-hmm. And she's decided that it's time to turn that power on Ale. And so she lays a curse on Ale that he will never find peace in Iceland or anywhere else until she sees him again. Okay. So we left our last episode with Ale erecting that scorn pole and laying a curse on Gunnild. Yeah, he erected that pole and laid oh, it on Ale. now, now... <laughs> uh, right. And uh, not just on Gunnild and Eric, but on Norway as well, for that matter, as you suggested earlier. That's right. right. The spirits of Norway were cursed to have no rest until Eric and Gunnild were cast out of the land. Seems like that magic works because now they have been. Mm-hmm. They're ousted from Norway and they're living elsewhere. Um, and now right. Gunnild, like uh, like Martina Navratilova, is returning serve. It's a curse <laughs> fest. Curse of Palooza. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, something else witty. Uh, but Gunnild's curse is a <laughs> bit slow acting. You get a curse acting. and you get a curse. That's right. Uh, but Gunnild's curse is a bit slow acting. It, it takes a couple of years before Ale starts to feel a bit restless in Iceland. Well, Andy, do you want your berserk foe cursed quick or do you want him cursed right? Oh, I want him cursed right. Uh, but Yeah, we're not doing sloppy curses around here. But, you know, it's not actually clear whether he's cursed at all. He is making some bad decisions, true, Uh, mainly that he comes to a decision very late in the sailing season. Uh, He decides to outfit his ship and sail for England way too late. Mm -hmm. Um, And he leaves Asgard behind to manage the farm and takes 30 men with him to crew the ship. And Ale seems to be coming out of retirement, John. Yeah, but, I mean, to be clear, he doesn't think he's going to visit Gunnild. No, he, he's got a standing invitation from Athelstan to come and visit any time. Right. That's a potentially lucrative offer from an open-handed king like Athelstan. Mm-hmm. And Ale's not the sort to miss a chance like that for long. Sure, but but Gunnild's curse is, we are given to understand, that is what makes him take this trip too late in the season. So that he's fighting dangerous weather. Uh, and he's also had word that Eric is ruling parts of the north, but he's not sure which parts. So as he sails past the Orkneys and into a heavy storm, Ale isn't sure where he can safely put to shore. He works his way down the coast of Scotland, but the storm keeps getting worse and worse, and finally the ship is forced to try for a landing in the mouth of the Humber River. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with English rivers, the Humber is the river that traditionally designated the border between Northumbria, that is north of the Humber, and the rest of England. So Ale almost made it past Eric's dominion, 
but not quite. Yeah, and that's not the worst of the news. I said he tried to put into shore, but the storm is so bad it drives the ship up onto a rocky outcrop, and although Ail and his crew survive, the ship is smashed to bits on the rocks. So, Ail is now stranded in Eric and Gunild's Northumbria. Good yeah. for him. Maybe curses do work. So, how much credit should we give the curses here, Andy? Uh, first, King Eric and Gunild are run out of Norway right after Ale erected a shame pole uh, for uh, shaming the spirits of Norway for allowing Eric to rule, right? Yeah, and then Gunild's curse against Ale is mentioned right before Ale decides on this ill-fated voyage to England. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, as a literary device, curses are usually pretty reliable in the sagas. I'd say that they're sure. responsible for these actions. Yeah. No, I, I think plot-wise, we can safely say that the curses are effective. It's more a question of whether curses in the sagas are expressions of belief in magic or of the pessimism of the authors and audience. Hmm. I mean, there is a sort of Murphy's Law logic to curses in the sagas. Uh, well, uh, culturally, there are a few expressions of that kind of thinking, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Take Odin, for example. Now, Odin was supposedly likely to sabotage the best warriors of a battle so as to bring them to Valhalla sooner. It's right. a clever way of stacking your, your side, right? Right, right. Uh, but that's that's also a way of explaining how even a man of great reputation could trip and fall in battle and get killed by random chance. I mean, how else as a warrior right. culture would you explain that? Right. So, so okay. So, Ale's bad luck or Gunild's sorcery or pessimism or all three uh, have resulted in him and his men being stranded in King Eric's Northumbria. So uh, mm-hmm. what's, a, what's a guy with a little unexpected shore leave behind enemy lines supposed to do with himself, Andy? Eh, go for a drink, find a girl, maybe get a tattoo. Get into a two. fight, maybe? Maybe look up an old friend. Ah, yeah, that's the one. Um, it doesn't really make sense as something to do in enemy territory, though, but yes. It, well, it does if your best friend is also in the retinue of your worst enemy. Uh, sure. So, Ale steals a horse and rides immediately for York to find the home of Arenbjorn and take his advice about what to do. Sure. Now, to be clear, though, Ale's not entirely calm about this situation. Right? I mean, that makes it sound like he's kind of just cool-headedly dealing with this. We're told he has to sort of brace himself to keep from trying to mm. flee Northumbria. It's, it's yeah. only the thought of how shameful it would look if he got caught trying to escape that forces him to ride into York. Well, again... Ail's last interaction with the royal family was when he killed their son, so you can see why he might be a little nervous about riding into their new capital city. Mm-hmm. And he's placing a lot of faith in Arnbjorn. This friend is supposed to somehow protect him from the people whose son he slaughtered. Right, all right. So so half a league, half a league, half a league onward. Into the Valley of York, brave Ail blundered. Okay. Uh, how's that work out for him? Well, the saga actually shows us this from Arnbjorn's perspective. A flunky enters Arnbjorn's house in York and says, uh, no, actually, John, you should do this voice. I, I've been Arnbjorn up to now, though I won't remember how I do. Oh, okay. Oh, it's my, my big scene as messenger number one. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. There's a man outside, huge as a troll. He asked me to come in and ask whether you'd prefer to talk to Ale Scuttler Grimson indoors or outside. I love it. <laughs> Go and ask him to wait out there. He won't need to wait long. Oh, that's ambiguous. Uh, Arnbjorn then has all his men gather around him and walks outside with the entire crowd to speak to Ale. See, that's not promising. Uh, it's not you know, really. You don't necessarily need to bring a, an armed guard to talk to a friend. Uh, you think not. 
But Ale doesn't really have a lot of options, so he explains the situation and says, uh, Now you must decide what I should do, if you want to help me in any way. Did you see anyone in town who might have recognized you before you came to this house? No one. <laughs> then take up your arms, everyone. And Arnbjorn and his men walk Ale to the king's residence which has still got to be a little nerve-wracking for Ale, right? Yeah. Arnbjorn hasn't said what he plans to do once they get there, but everyone's got yeah. their arms. They're they're walking to the king's palace. Right. Oh, boy. Right. Is he be being bad. escorted or guarded? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think this is supposed to be a tense moment, but I don't think anyone ever expects anything underhanded from Arnbjorn. Right. Arnbjorn presents Ale's case to the king and offers his support to Ale. Right. Arnbjorn is presented as a man of high moral and ethical standards, I think, in this saga, right? I mean, over and over mm-hmm. again, we see this. Uh, I think there are even times when he compares favorably with Ale, who, I mean, if we're being honest, Ale isn't always the most morally unambiguous guy in Iceland. Yeah, but for the moment, even Ale realizes that he's pushing his luck by coming to Eric and Gunnild's court. Arnbjorn's argument to the king is essentially that Ale came to England specifically to reconcile with Eric, and it's a great compliment to you, my lord. That your enemies come to see you voluntarily because they feel they cannot live with your wrath, even in your absence. That is a that's a pretty slick argument. It's a hell of a good try, anyway. But <laughs> Eric, weak as he might be, mm-hmm. isn't necessarily in the excuse buying market when it comes to ale. <laughs> Why are you here, ale? I don't need to list all the wrongs you've done. You cannot expect anything but to die here. Oh, well. I mean, as an opening position, that's uh, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Uh, now, for his part, Ale catches on right away to what Armbjorn's trying to do and throws himself into playing the part of the contrite supplicant. He actually kneels, takes the king's foot in his hand, and speaks a verse. I've traveled on the sea god's steed. A long and turbulent wave path to visit the one who sits in command of the English land. In great boldness, the shaker of the womb-flaming sword has met the mainstay of King Harold's line. Hmm. That's not a great look for Ale, holding the foot of a Norwegian king and asking for reconciliation after all that's yeah. transpired, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, well, technically, Eric's not king of Norway anymore. <laughs> But, uh, but, yeah, I know what True. you mean. Uh, on on the other hand, getting though. beheaded... Right, I mean, you know, that's... Uh, but if his other choice is getting beheaded by his enemies after being shipwrecked, I mean, that's not a great look for Ale either. So it's really a matter of picking your poison. That's fair. And Gunnil doesn't like the way her husband's taking this. What else is new? <laughs> Why do you not have Ale executed at once? Don't you recall, King, what he's done? Killed your friends? Your kinsmen? even your own son, and heaped scorn upon you. Have Ale taken outside and killed, King. I want neither to hear his words nor to see him. I mean, that's that's probably not a surprise, really. I mean, there's a reason why Ale and Arnbjorn are talking to Eric and not to Gunnild. Yeah. Uh, but it also gives Arnbjorn an opening. See, according to the rules that govern this sort of thing, executing a man at night is murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Arnbjorn suggests that Eric allow Ale to spend the night at his house, at, at Arnbjorn's house, while subtly acting as though he's just trying to save the king from a shameful act of the queen's urging. 
Yeah, and we've seen this motif before. The uh-huh. uh, so an intercessor coming in and saying, "Oh, well, we can't kill him just yet. It is right, evening. Right. You can't kill a man at night." Um, but yeah, Armbjorn's a, a cagey smart one, isn't he? Mm-hmm. he? He's he's up to something, and he even gives a hint of what he's up to. If Ail has spoken badly of the king, he can make recompense with words of praise that will last forever. I mean, that's almost more than a hint. That's that's basically, basically Armbjorn. Yeah, I mean, he's promising to put Ail the poet to work on the king's behalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not all. Armbjorn also points out that when most of the landowners in Norway turned on Eric in favor of his brother Hauken, he, Armbjorn, remained loyal, even though it cost him a great deal to do so. And that sort of loyalty should be rewarded. Yes, hint, hint. Uh, yes. Uh, well, whether Eric is intrigued by the implied offer or by Armbjorn's friendship or just doesn't want to look like a murderer, uh, the arguments work. Ale is given one night's reprieve. But Armbjorn is ordered to bring Ale back in the morning, so presumably mm-hmm. so that he can be killed all legal-like. Yes, and that still leaves one night for Ale to save his own life. And Armbjorn's got a scheme. A plan, if you will. Oh, no. Andy, is it a cunning plan? Oh, it most certainly is. Oh, Lord. I've got a plan so cunning you could put a tail on it and call it a weasel. (laughs) Part 32. How to get ahead in Northumbria. All right, what's the plan? Arambjorn has a relative named Bragi Bolesen, who once got into trouble with King Bjorn of Sweden. Yeah, I know this story. He solved... Yes, yeah. He solved this problem by composing a draupa, a praise poem, in the king's honor. And he did this overnight. Sure he did. And his suggestion is that Eol should spend the night imitating Bragi and maybe composing a praise poem of his own uh-huh. for King Eric. It should be, if it's a good draupa, 20 verses long to match the one that Bragi composed. And like Bragi, Eol has to pull it off in one night. Okay, I was wrong. This is a great plan. It's a legit cunning plan, and don't even you don't even have to be sarcastic about it. It's legit. I'm, I'm not. I mean, not intentionally. Sometimes I'm sometimes I'm unintentionally sarcastic. It's kind of my my ground state of being. Uh, but no, this is great. What 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 Armbjorn is doing is telling Ale to take part in a literary tradition. It'll mm-hmm. be a great compliment to Eric to be on the receiving end of a poem like that, and if he pulls it off, it'll put Ale into rarefied company as a poet, the equal of yes. Bragi the poet. And he'll get to keep his head. It's a win-win. He's literally risking his head on this poem, though. Um, and it's it's such a, you know, let's talk about meta, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about Ail Scott Le Grimson being asked to compose a poem to save his neck with a king he's uh, kind of pissed off right. uh, by an author, Snorri Sturluson, yep. who <laughs> ran into similar circumstances in his own life. Yes, he did. Maybe he's channeling some of his own biography uh, here. Yes, and of course, um, he's also making reference to other things that he wrote. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, that's it's a theme it's, that he kind of develops spot. over the course of his career. I mean, if if Story Sterlison is not the author of Ale Saga, uh-huh. what a huge disappointment that would be <laughs> to him. It's most so of all, what a missed he, opportunity. Uh, anyway, this is the first real set piece poem of the saga. Um, there's yeah. a, a quite a there's like what three large yes. poems in the saga, and this one is called the Hovathloisen, which means the head ransom poem. Yeah, this reference to the poet Bragi at this point is a. Uh, as you say, it's kind of a meta-narrative moment. It is. And uh, Bragi Bolison, who is appearing here as Arnbjorn's great-grandfather, was a semi-historical figure. 
He's a poet whose initial claim to fame is that he's the earliest skaldic poet who has surviving verses attributed to him. And I think we've mentioned him a couple times. Yeah, uh, there are actually several versions of the head ransom story scattered around Scandinavian literature. Uh, I mean, there's even a there's even a version in the mythology of the gods uh, when Loki wages his head in a contest with a dwarven craftsman. Bragi's importance here is because he's a famous poet, not because of the head poem. As a matter of fact, this uh, this reference to Bragi is actually a little confusing because the uh, the Skaldatal, the list of poets written in the 13th century, says that a different poet of King Björn composed a head poem. But that poet isn't famous. Right. And Bragi is super famous. So much so that super some scholars famous. have actually accepted he's huge. that the well, he's he's tremendous. Uh, but he's he's actually so important that some scholars accept that references in the Norse myths to Bragi the Norse god of poetry, actually derive from the name of this famous ancestor of Armbjörn's. Uh, I mean, which would be very cool. Yeah. Uh, but that hasn't really been decided, though. No. Snorri Sturluson makes uh, the infamous, The to, infamous? Oh, my goodness. The infamous Snorri Sturluson, yes, refers to Bragi. But it's so hard to talk about Snorri Sturluson when <laughs> we, you constantly got to be interrupted with the infamous. <laughs> Well, but the infamous Snorri Sturluson refers to Bragi Bolason in his writing, but always as a human figure distinct from the god Bragi. And that's a game that works both ways. Bragi the god could be a deified version of the historical but vague Bragi Bolason. Mm-hmm. Or the half-remembered poet could easily end up with the name of a god of poetry. Or it's a coincidence, but uh, or that, you know, yeah. Snorri yeah, is yeah, known, sure. you know... Uh, at the very beginning of the prose edda, he, he talks about how the gods themselves are actually humans right. uh, whose legend was turned into kind of a religion. Yeah, but he's just blowing smoke in case the bishop looks over his shoulder while he's writing. He doesn't really believe that. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> uh, but he has a reputation for taking godlike figures mm-hmm. or, or gods and turning them into humans. Right. Now, if uh, if people are interested in pursuing this connection between uh, the gods and Bragi, uh, Alison Finley's essay, Losing One's Head, provides a brief background on Bragi and on the head ransom poet tradition. It's a great uh, title. Yeah, it is. Uh, but for our purposes, what makes this reference to Bragi so meta is that it is essentially Arnbjorn telling Ale that if he can pull this poem off, he'll be remembered as a great poet like Bragi. Which is a good strategy with Ale, right? Yeah. And he's telling Ale this in a saga written by the same infamous story who did so much in his writing to make Bragi a famous figure in the first place. It's, <laughs> I mean, brilliant. Yep. Uh, so are we ready to finally accept that Snorri wrote this saga? Is that where we are now? I mean, I'm going to stick with more likely than not, and I sure as hell hope so. Right. Uh, that's where I'm That's where I'm at. Uh, so, okay. So this, this literary tradition of the head ransom poem is just waiting for a poet of Ale's ability to take it up, yes? Sure. Yeah, all Ale has to do is write a convincing 20-verse poem in praise of his mortal enemy, memorize it, and then perform it flawlessly in a court full of people who want to see him dead. (laughs) And he has only one night to do it. Bah! A snap! A doddle! All Ale needs is a quiet room, some scrap paper, maybe a little coffee. A snap, a doddle. You're at least half a hobbit, aren't you? (laughs) Leaf by niggle, Andy. Yes, that's a great story. Um, anyway, Ale gets a, a quiet space to work and he's left alone while Arambjorn and his men go down to the main room to drink and talk together. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those details that makes this saga so good, by the way. 
Arnbjorn is shown to be feasting his men, presumably as a thanks to them for standing by him when he antagonized the king and queen by defending Eil. <laughs> no, it's a good point. That's actually a big ask from men who've already followed him from Norway, specifically right? to support this king and queen. Yeah. Oh, follow me. We'll, we'll go with the deposed king and right. queen. It's right. going to be great. Right. Now follow me again while I really cheese them off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the author shows that Arnbjorn is a good host and friend, but when he breaks away from the party a few hours later to see how Ail's doing, well, he finds that, kind of like my wife checking on me with my work, <laughs> he hasn't really accomplished anything yet. But nothing? Not even a limerick, John. Oh. There once was a deposed king from Norway. Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> so is, is Ail too busy checking the Indian scores on the on the computer to get any work done? Is that what's going on? <laughs> That's a that's a yeah, deep, that's a deep the, cut. That's a <laughs> and the you know the Browns preseason started yes, and there's yes. a lot of excitement. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, it's not the uh, it's not Cleveland sports distracting right. him. Uh, it, it's and it's not Reddit. It's a, a bird outside on the mm-hmm. windowsill and it's it's twittering away, <laughs> twittering. That's clearly not me if you check our account. Right. <laughs> but the uh, the twittering bird has been distracting him yeah. all night. Yeah. No, I, I really feel like you're setting me up for like an old man Twitter joke here. And I just want to say I'm not rising to the bait, but I recognize that you're fishing. Uh, Armbjorn <laughs> resists the urge to tell Ale to stop stalling. Instead, he just climbs out the window and sits by the sill all night. And he actually does indeed see a bird, which he recognizes as a shapeshifter in bird form fleeing from the roof of the house. Ah, and with Arambjorn on guard duty, Eil can finally get to work, and he composes the entire poem in the remaining hours of the night, quite a feat. Mm -hmm. And then he commits the whole thing to memory as the sun comes up. So the plan worked. Great job, everyone. Hey, sometimes sometimes cramming really does work, (laughs) everyone out there, all you students. Mm. Uh, no, the the hard part is actually still to come. Writing and memorizing the 20-line stanza was the easy part? Well, it doesn't do any good to have composed the thing unless Eric and Gunild are willing to listen to it, and then they've got uh, to like it, too. Well, okay, yes, that does seem important, yes. Yeah, so Arnbjorn and his men escort Eil back to Eric's court the next morning, and when they arrive, Gunild immediately smells a rat. Well, of course she does. Let's remember that Gunild is a sorceress, and shapeshifting is one of the tricks of sorcery. Mm-hmm. Gunild might be a little grumpy because she was up all night in the form of a sparrow chirping outside of Ale's window. Quite possibly, yeah. So, uh, I don't think quite possibly. I think that was her. That's that's pretty straightforward, yeah. <laughs> or she enchanted a sparrow to go do it. There you go. Either way. Um, but it takes a lot of effort. So, when Arnbjorn again reminds the king about his loyalty, Gunild isn't having it. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't know. Do you want to be Gunild or do you want to be Eric for this one? Because uh, I, I usually do both their voices. Um, I'll I'll take Gunild. I'll try to live up to the standard okay. you've set. Oh, it's a high it's a high <laughs> bar. I don't know if you can get over it. Stop going on about that, Arnbjorn. You've treated King Eric well, and he's rewarded you in full. You owe much more to the king than to Ale, and you cannot ask for Ale to be sent away unpunished. So Arnbjorn says. If you, King, and Gunild have decided already that Ale will not be granted any reconciliation here, the noble course would be to give him a week's grace to get away, since he came here of his own accord and expected a peaceful reception. I can tell from this that you're more loyal to Ale than to Eric. 
If Ale is given a week to escape, he will have time to reach King Athelstan. And Eric can't ignore that every king is more powerful than Eric now. Though Oops. not long ago he would have seemed unlikely to lack the will and the character to take revenge for what he has suffered from one like Ale. No one will think Eric greater for having killed a foreign farmer's son who gave himself into Eric's hands. And if it's reputation the king seeks, I can help him to make this episode truly memorable. Because Ale and I will stand by each other. Mm. And everyone will have to face the two of us together. The king will pay a dear price to get Ale's life if he tries to kill me and my men as well. Well, damn. That, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Arnbjorn is officially the best Norwegian companion ever. The best. Um, <laughs> and, and this also explains why he asked his men to bring their arms, right? Right. He had no intention of giving Ale over. Right. Um, always, he, he's counting on himself to be able to fight Eric uh, off. And we should say Very that strong. his men are probably at this point thinking, what now? Uh, what? Yeah, what? You know, so, uh, <laughs> I don't remember I signing off sword? on that. <laughs> Can we take yeah. a vote on this? Wow. Uh, we're pretty comfortable here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but with, with Armbjorn and his men now gathered around Ale, the scene is set for a fairly epic showdown between the king and his most powerful supporter. But in the middle of all this, Ale and the king, the men at the center of this, they've remained silent. Yeah, just staring daggers at each other. Yes. But when Armbjorn essentially dares Gunil to give the order to kill Ale... Eric finally speaks up. You're staking a great deal to help Ale, Arendjorn. I am reluctant to harm you if you are determined to lose your own life rather than see him killed. But Ale has done me great wrong, whatever I may decide to do with him. You know, there are times when I suspect Eric of being much smarter than this saga wants to believe he is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are these hints every so often that Eric is much more calculating than his father was or even than his wife is. But this is a- I, I think hmm? I, I almost think given given the way that he's handled in the saga, if Gunild wasn't there, he wouldn't yeah. be that bad. But he's constantly goaded right. no, into think, doing he, stupid things. Right. We we talked a couple episodes ago. Uh, I forget who you were quoting, but uh, that there's a real sense that Gunild takes up the role of the antagonist and of being the kind of nemesis for Ail's family. And that Eric really isn't. He's just kind of along for the ride. But that she's the one who really carries that feud forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a shame for him. No, I think he's also not a real great guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, just, he does he's just not, follow through I mean, on he's, he's smarter go-to. than his father was. And I think he would have been able to, you know, the suggestion seems to be that he's, he's in this feud kind of against his will. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's not annoyed about the, you know, the berserker who killed his son being in front of him. Um, Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in this moment, with, with Gunild and Armbjorn locked into a contest of egos that's just escalating the tension, right? Um, Eric bides his time. And by biding his time a bit, Eric makes himself the aloof king who's above petty squabbles. Oh, well, I mean, you're being very generous there. And maybe. I mean, he might just be ineffectual. Uh, but his little speech does open the door for Ale to speak up. And he speaks. Mm-hmm. And speaks. And speaks. Ale recites the entirety of his poem in a silent room of men poised to kill one another. So, as we said, this poem is famous. Mm-hmm. It's also very long, and this <laughs> is an audio medium. 
Uh, are we planning to read the whole thing? Are we even allowed to read the whole thing? How does this work? Yeah, no. I mean, I thought about it, but no. It's it's a little long to sit and listen to it explanations. Uh, and yes, there is the issue of copyright on a translation. So uh, I think we're going to focus on a few verses that indicate the whole. Okay. Uh, we should preface this by reminding everyone that we are working mostly from Bernard Scudder's translation of the saga. So... Um, as is true of any translation of skaldic verse, there's a lot of work to be done by the reader to draw out the meaning of the poetry. In a translation, that that work is done by an intermediary. So mm-hmm. if you are reading a different translation or you know the the, the, the language uh, really well, yeah. um, you know some of the the the, the translation, the meaning uh, might be a little bit different from what you're used to. Absolutely. Um, so just bear in mind that's what happens when you read a translation. Yep. Uh, so, uh, so let's start at the start. Okay. West over water I fared, bearing poetry's waves to the shore of the war god's heart. My course was set. I launched my oaken craft at the breaking of ice, loaded my cargo of praise aboard my longboat aft. The warrior welcomed me. To him my praise is due. I carry Odin's mead to England's meadows. The leader, I laud, sing surely his praise. I ask to be heard, an ode I can devise. All right. Already I can tell a couple of things. Mm-hmm. First... Uh, I kind of wish we were doing the whole thing because uh, you doing that voice for the whole thing is going to kill your throat. Yeah, I drink a lot of honey and lemon tea. Uh, just for your ale voice, sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> uh, the other thing that I notice is that this poem is going to be walking a very fine line between I'm praising Eric and slighting him. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, there's also a fair amount of lying going on. Okay, so let's do a quick count here because we, we didn't get very far in. Uh, mm-hmm. Like the first 16 lines of the poem, we've got um, 11 or 12 lines in that first 16 that are about Ale himself. Like, I left home. I was on a boat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. Uh, two of the four, uh, two to four lines um, are there that actually praise Ironbjorn. Um, and then at best, there are two lines about Eric in there. Yeah, it's the uh, the leader I laud sings surely his praise. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they sound good on their own, those, but uh, without context, they just emphasize the emptiness of the praise. Right. Uh, but I think we can get more into that later. Let's yeah. go deeper. Yeah, no. Uh, so what's happening is that Ale is really leaning into this uh, this lie that he came to England to seek out Eric. Right. We know it's not true. And he's not actually saying it, but it, it's pretty clearly what he's implying. Uh, a line like... Yeah. I loaded my cargo of praise aboard my longboat aft. Sure seems to say that he set out to say nice things about Eric. It does, yeah. Um, there there are some pretty arbitrary lies in there as well. Uh, mm-hmm. He said, I launched my oaken craft at the breaking of ice, uh, which suggests an early spring departure, the breaking of ice, right? But Ale ran into trouble because he left Iceland so late in the season. <laughs> so, but is that meant literally at the breaking of ice? I mean, I wondered if it might mm. just be a reference to the bay ice gathering in the cold waters off Iceland. Uh, that's true, yeah. That, I mean, that, that could very well be. Um, also, metaphorically, 
breaking of ice between you know the two, the tension between oh, the two. Oh, that's I don't a, know. that's that's clever. That's clever. Uh, yeah. Either way, whatever you you think of it, it keeps the focus on Ale and what he's done, what he's endured, mm-hmm. and it skirts just shy of the lie that he left Iceland to seek out Eric. Um, okay, so we've established the tone and that he's pretty heavy on summary here. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump ahead a bit in the poem, uh, most of which is it's just going to be a description of Eric's success in battle. Right. So uh, so where should we go to? Well, why don't we jump to verses 9 and 10? Okay. Blades made play and swords bore down. Eric that day won great renown. Ravens flocked to the reddened sword. Spears plucked lives and gory shafts sped. The scourge of Scots fed the wolves the trolls ride. Loki's daughter, Hell, trod the eagle's food. Mm-hmm. So, by this point... Yeah. If you're reading the poem, and I encourage you to go grab your copy of Bernard Scudder or whatever Ale Saga you've got and check it out. At, by this point, you start to get a sense of how, at least the way I read it, mm-hmm. it it's fairly empty. These are stock yeah. motifs. These are yes. stock images that he keeps piling up. There's lots of beasts of battle imagery. There's battle imagery. Um, but it's none of it's specific yeah. to... Eric and his actual accomplishments. I mean, Where? The, and it isn't even so much that he's doing cool stuff, right? I mean, the only, once again, the only lines in there that are specific to Eric are Eric that day won great renown. That's and, true. And everything yeah. else in there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, as you say, like the rest of this really is just the the beasts of battle. I mean, it's one of the most stock motifs of Germanic poetry. Yeah. Uh, and it's it reads, you know, if you've read a bunch of Germanic poetry, I mean, this really does read like, you know, a, a student who didn't have enough time to finish his paper and just stuck a paragraph in off of Wikipedia. Right? I mean, it's just – it's it's such a stock motif that it almost feels plagiarized. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, you if you're listening carefully, you're like, uh, uh, oh, yeah, I heard that before. Mm-hmm. I heard that before. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's familiar. Yep. Yep. That's a familiar line. Yep. Uh, it's not that – And so you uh, – Yeah. If you're an appreciator of Skaldic verse, you should be <laughs> disappointed by what you're hearing. Yeah, I think there's. I think there is. You know, it can be done well, and it's not being done poorly here. Um, no, it's. But it's. It does. It doesn't bring anything, or it does. It's not anything new. Uh, it's, yeah, just in terms of a praise poem for a king, right? It doesn't seem to accomplish much, right? And as it you just say, stacks it, stock imagery, right? And it keeps leaving Eric out of the limelight, right? The story isn't mm-hmm. Eric's story. Eric just happens to be there. Yeah. Uh, all right, so I want to um, look ahead to a shift in this poem that happens in verse 16, which is when we actually start to hear more specific things about Eric, although, as you're going to see, it's it's yet again fairly stock motifs. Uh, so this is after Ale has finished telling of Eric's quote-unquote battle prowess. Uh, he's been going on about Eric winning renown, killing men with spears and arrows, and then... Yet more I desire that men realize his generous nature. I urge on my praise. He throws gold river flame, but holds his lands in his hand like a vise. He is worthy of praise. 
Hmm. Uh, once again, it's it's this very kind of generic. Yeah, he throws gold around. Uh, yeah, uh, but, but then, it's interesting. He holds his lands in his hand like a vice. Yeah, isn't that great? Uh, I remember that uh, the one of the things that Ail and Eric have clashed over is that Ail claimed lands in Norway mm-hmm. uh, on behalf of his wife, and Eric presided over a court at which he was denied his right to that land. Yeah. So even in praising Eric, Ail manages to get in a little dig about Eric running a corrupt court. And what's really clever, so here's the thing. Like, so we're, we're, we're kind of implying that this poem is empty. Mm-hmm. But it's a really clever poem yeah. because in its emptiness, given its purpose, right, a praise poem of Eric, yep. he's technically praising Eric in a way that sounds, it sounds good uh, on the right. surface. Right. But all you have to do is scratch a little bit beneath the surface. And yes. you start to see subtle, implied... Mm-hmm insults or references to uh the history that they have together it's great in that regard but it's it's yeah it's a it's a really i mean it's the hardest thing in the world to do right it's the thing that like actors always talk about the worst the hardest thing for an actor to do is to pretend to be a bad actor yeah convincingly uh the, the, the hardest thing for a person with perfect pitch to do is to deliberately sing badly uh and ale who we already know is this you know tremendously accomplished poet is doing a virtuosic job of writing bad poetry. Bad poetry that doesn't on the surface seem like bad poetry. Right. Right. It's just <laughs> he's he's walking such a line here. It's really it's yeah. so much fun to to dig into this poem. Yeah. Um, I, I think we have time for one more here. Um, okay. And this one, I, I think I want to do the one that comes uh, near the end of the poem. And mm-hmm. it's sort of Ailes wrap up to the Drapa. Which one do you want me to do? Is the next to last one? Yeah, the okay. King Bear in Mind one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. King, bear in mind how my ode is wrought. I take delight in the hearing I gained. Through my lips I stirred from the depths of my heart. Odin's sea of verse about the craftsmen of war. So... Again, this is uh, this is about ale. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, keep in all he says about Eric is that he begins by addressing King. Yeah. Other than that, it's me, me, me. And he's saying, King, just remember, I wrote a cool poem for you. Yeah, this actually That's basically this what feels, it comes down to. This feels a little bit like. Um, the the moment on uh, most like rap albums, uh, when the the artist begins to brag about his prowess as a rapper, uh, right, <laughs> brag about his rhymes. Right, bear in yeah. mind how my ode is wrought. I take delight in the hearing I gain through my lips. I stirred from the depths of my heart. Odin's sea of verse about the craftsmen of war. I mean, it wouldn't take much to set this to a beat and to actually rap it out. Well, there's a project for our listeners. Take this poem, <laughs> get your friend who does a great beatbox, um, go down to the, the corner, yep, and uh, see what you can come up with. There you I'm go. Looking forward to there looking forward go. to hearing it. Yep. Uh, but it's but it is it's very much a it's a it's a essentially it's I know nobody else is going to compliment me for this poem, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that myself. 
That's right. And, uh, you know, and it, it, now that it's in the poem, and I think this, <laughs> this is maybe the brilliant piece of it, right? The uh-huh. conclusion of the poem is, if you don't let me off for these right. crimes I've committed, right. um, you're a real punk because this was a great poem I wrote. <laughs> right. I agree, and so do I, and so does everyone currently saying this. Exactly. Uh, we, we've all concurred that it's a great poem. Who are you to disagree? Right. Uh, okay, so if we're wrapping it up with Ale's statement, King, bear in mind how my ode is wrought, I think there's something that we, we've we already been acknowledging here, right? Uh, oh, are we going to go into yeah. that? So, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it isn't it's, – it's not a great Draupa, really, right? I mean, it depends on who you ask. I, it's, I was sort of asking you. But if you prefer, <laughs> we can ask Sigurdhan Nordahl. Uh, he called it, quote, an insubstantial work, lesser in quality than Ale's other best works. Say, well, that's just hurtful, Sigurdhan. Well, I mean, there's something to it. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. We've been talking about it this whole time. It's, it's a great job of masking a bad poem as a great poem. That – Yes, which makes it great in a way, but not really, yes. if that makes any sense. Right. Um, but a lot of people share the opinion to a greater or lesser degree mm-hmm. um, it's uh, that it's a problematic poem. Yeah. Um, and, and for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, we could talk for a while about the manuscript problems in establishing a clear and clean copy of the poem itself. Sure. Or we could talk about its construction or about its sometimes lukewarm praise of Eric. And a lot of ink has been spilled over this particular poem. Mm -hmm. Um, Some readers make a strong case that this poem puts events rather than people at the center of the narrative, Mm -hmm. which somewhat robs a praise poem of its force. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And any discussion of the Hoffa really has to grapple with this problem. Uh, We should also say that the poem has its defenders. Uh, John Hines says that uh, this poem meticulously sets the stage on which it's to be performed, and transposes a typical Viking praise of action into a meditative mode. Hmm. Uh, but I think a lot of readers do see this poem as lacking in thematic, if not necessarily technical, quality. Yeah, and that, I, I think I'm with them. All the, what Again, what's cool about it, though, is it's all intentional. Right. And it's right. subtle. And it's brilliant in its the messiness of it, right. the in intentional badness, messiness yeah. of it. Um, the badness that is presented as mm-hmm. goodness that's actually badness. I mean, that's that's great. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, right. you you were asking whether Ale is deliberately insulting Eric with bad verse, and that's not a question of technical skill. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, a, a skilled poet who masters techniques and then uses them to appear unskilled is playing a fairly deep game. Or is writing poetry that values technique at the cost of artistry? Maybe. I mean, it's not the most complex of saga poems, it's true. Uh, although it is distinguished by things like end rhyming in the original Norse, which is yeah. unusual for Ale's time. Which is a whole different debate. Um, and maybe, I mean, it's possible. I don't, I don't know enough about Old Norse poetry to say, mm-hmm. um, but I'm wondering if... If that was considered a weakness in poetry to to adopt a continental mode and and rhyme, mm. at least for a person of Ale's era, right? I mean, you wonder in the tenth century whether that would even be would register as a quality of continental poetry necessarily, uh, mm. because you know think about sort of other Germanic poetry, Anglo-Saxon poetry is also eschews the tail rhyme. True, although I. I, I uh, in the 13th century, how popular is rhyming poetry? Oh, in the 13th in, century, it's in, extremely po- popular, right? And they're yeah, they're increasingly importing uh, poetry and even prose from the continent. So yeah, uh, exactly. But right, this this is another one of those moments when we see 
you know, the the fingers of the 13th century making themselves felt in the 10th. Yeah. And so how are we supposed to read a, a bit of rhyming in the Old Norse poem right. um, in, in this particular case? It's uh, it, again, it's it's extremely complicated um, this this particular poem right. and how we're how we're supposed to read it. It depends on a number of factors that you have mm-hmm. to spend a lot of time reading to figure out. And even right. then, uh, you probably won't know. Uh, again, <laughs> that's discouraging. Like I said, there's a small library of ink spilled uh, over this Hovathlausen and what it means and what its quality is. And mm-hmm. further complicating it is the the question of whether or not it was composed by the actual historical A.L. Scott the Grimson. Right. And I mean, a lot of that argument gets built around comparisons to Ailes' other major works, and that's a problematic set of data to work from. Uh, we might revisit this in a few episodes when we get to those other great poems. Uh, yeah. And there are also debates about whether the metric form of the poem fits the historical period, which you were saying. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, we can we can go on and on. But people who want a clearer sense of the debates raging around this poem uh, might want to look at uh, John Hines' article, uh, Ailes' Hoffetlausen in Time and Place. Yeah, and we'll we'll have information about several books and articles that might be useful on the uh, bibliography that we I need to update mm-hmm. uh, for Ale Saga, <laughs> um, and those those articles and books will go into a lot more detail than we're doing here. Right, but but I think even if we stick to a strictly textual understanding, it's very much a question in my mind uh, whether Ale is composing mediocre verse here on purpose. Right, that that skilled lack of skill we talked about. Uh, so the question is, at a textual level, does Ale as a character in a story, deliberately undersell his praise and his poetic skills in order to insult Eric even as he praises him? Well, when you frame it in that way, I think I'm going to say what Ale does is he deliberately undersells his praise of King Eric and his poetic skills in a way that's subtle enough that a skilled poet and a skilled audience would recognize, Mm -hmm. but he understands that Eric is not one of those. The audience he's speaking to is not those kind of people. So, uh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Right. So, yes. uh, Yeah. So let's look, let's go back for a second to the poem. The, the fifth and sixth verses are in a sneak it all. You're sneaking it all in. I'm getting a little bit more in there. All right. The fifth and sixth verses in part. The web of spears did not stray from their course above the king's bright rows of shields. In the mud men lay when spears rained down. Eric that day won great renown. In the mud men lay when spears rained down. Mm-hmm. And Eric won great yeah. renown. Uh, how, do, how do you want to read that? Uh, Ale's putting renown after a sequence that connects dead men in the mud to Eric's men hiding behind shields as spears rain down on them. I, I think what we have here is antiphrasis, uh, which is uh, like sarcasm with its best suit on. Uh, <laughs> renown, in this case, is an ambiguous word, and it's being disambiguated in favor of a negative fame. Oh, we're, we're getting very English classy uh, here. I mean, there are a few other moments like that in the Draupa. There's, there's very little in this praise poem that's actually and clearly meant to praise. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a point worth considering. Eric certainly seems to consider it because <laughs> he he glares at Ale throughout the entire performance. Yes, he does. Expecting something terrible to happen. Uh-huh. And when it's over, his response to the poem is a long silence. Mm-hmm. And then 
he says the poem was well delivered, which is different from saying it was well made. Yes, it or that yes. it was a good poem. Yes, yes. Um, say Eric's not as dumb as we sometimes think he is. Yeah, he does let Ao go though. He explicitly ties that decision to Aaron Bjorn's support for him, rather than framing it as a reward for the poem. So again, maybe Eric isn't as dumb as we uh, or Ao thinks he is. Right. Uh, he says Aaron Bjorn. You have presented Ale's case so fervently that you were even prepared to enter into conflict with me. For your sake, I shall do as you have asked and let Ale go safe and unharmed. Yeah, now that that is a long way from saying that the poem was the reason for granting Ale his life. Yeah, I didn't hear him say anything like, Ale, wonderful poem, off you go now. Encore, encore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a, how about a poem about my dear wife Gunnild? What about that? Um, and Eric then tells Ale he can go, but he explicitly says that this is not a reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So maybe the poem wasn't uh, as awesome <laughs> as <laughs> as maybe Ale hoped it would be received as. Yeah. But uh, um, and and he he adds then. Um, if Eric or any of his family ever see Ale again, that mm-hmm. uh, of course they will be free to kill him. He says, <laughs> go away and never come back. Right. I am letting you keep your head for the time being, Ale. Should I see you again? It's chop chop time. Right. Uh, and of course, Ale has another verse ready to go for the occasion. <laughs> oh, sure. An extra poem. It's like, it is an encore. What's yeah, he got to say? Uh Ugly as my head may be, the cliff my (laughs) helmet rests on, I'm not loath to accept it from the king. Where is the man who ever received a finer gift from a noble-minded son of a great ruler? (laughs) And right off the bat, we can see that this is a better constructed verse and more clever than anything in the Head Ransom poem. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, And Ail still managing to get in those subtle digs at Eric. He doesn't call Eric a great ruler. He calls mm-hmm. him the son of a great ruler. He does right? indeed. Ale's just having fun at this point. It's a nice sideswipe. Uh, and he takes a shot at himself, too. Mm-hmm. He, uh, a standard Ale kind of self-effacing, ugly as my head may be. Yeah. That's that's actually a feature of head price poems, uh, that the poet's description of his own ugly head as a, a meager prize for his efforts. And right. that's what he's doing. And I'm just going to point out that you said it was a self-effacing moment, in fact. I did. Don't. What? What? Oh, God. Don't be so <laughs> pleased with yourself for that. <laughs> I'm still I only did it because it's actually what it is. Uh, but you, you were <laughs> getting silly. Uh, so is that it? Uh, Ale gets to leave with his unattractive head and Goodnold has to put up with it? Essentially, yes. Yeah. Eric's made it clear that he can't afford to go against Arambjorn. In their reduced straits in Northumbria, Eric and Gunnild need Arambjorn more than he needs them. And mm. all three of them know it. Yeah. So if Arambjorn says Ale goes free, then, well, Ale goes free. Okay, yes. who's going to win the but, battles for you? But this is Gunnild we're dealing with. A queen who sends her brothers to assassinate people in sacred spaces, who thinks nothing of breaking up an entire legal assembly to derail her enemies' court cases, mm-hmm. and who can turn into an annoying bird to disrupt the poetic process. I think we can assume that she's not going to let Ale walk away scot-free. Well, we can assume all we want, but uh, Arnbjorn wasn't born yesterday. He has 100 armed and mounted men prepared at his house, mm. and the entire battalion, led by Arnbjorn himself 
escort Ale all the way to the court of King Athelstan in the south of England. Uh, quite a long journey. So this is brilliant. Uh, Athelstan's probably the only person in England who Eric and Gunild are more beholden to than Arenbjorn. Mm-hmm. And he's also the best friend, again, apart from Arenbjorn, that Ale's got in the whole of England. So Gunild's hands are tied. She can't act against Ale now. And uh, since he's seen her, by the way, her curse against him no longer has any effect. I told you he had a cunning plan. I, I stand corrected. It was a very Ooh, cunning plan. Yes. He handled it. Uh-huh. And uh, once he deposits Ale safely with Athelstan, Ironbeard returns to Northumbria. But uh, before he leaves, he and Ale exchange gifts, as one does to confirm friendship in the sagas. Ale gives Ironbeard the two thick arm rings that King Athelstan gave him after the Battle of Brunenburg. Wow. Yeah. yeah, those rings that were passed across on the tip of the sword. And Arambjorn gives Ale a sword named Dragvandil, which means roughly slicer. Slicer, yeah. Yeah, the arm rings are obviously a, a noble and valuable gift, but that sword is really something special. Mm-hmm. It's a sword that Arambjorn has carried for years, ever since it was given to him by Ale's brother, Thorolf. Yeah, this is actually a moment that packs a surprisingly emotional wallop. Uh, Ale, he's returned to England, and he's near the field where he lost his brother, and he's given the gift of his brother's sword. That's a, that's a, I'm a little verklempt just thinking about it. Uh, talk amongst yourselves. Talk amongst yourselves. Uh, but it's a sword with an even greater history than just having been Thorolf's. That's right. Uh, get out your pencil, folks. This is going to be epic. So... Drogvandil was given to Thorolf Mark II by his father, Scotlagrim. Scotlagrim got it from his brother, Thorolf Mark I. Uncle Thorolf had received the sword as a gift from his second cousin, Grim Harrycheeks, who had inherited it from his father, Kettleheim. Mm, all great names. Um, important yes, people. Uh, and, and all of this means that Ale is the seventh member of his family to carry Drogvandil. And the sword actually has an even longer history than that, which is laid out in a couple of other sagas, especially the saga of Ketilhang. And in that saga, we learn that Drangvandil is a famous dueling sword and brings luck to anyone who carries it <laughs> into a duel. Yeah, that, that seems significant. Well, let's just say it's more than a, a mere sentimental gift. Ale might find it very handy to have a dueling sword in uh, our next episode, which we're going to call the dueling episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, But we're not done with this episode just yet. Uh, Ale waves goodbye to Arnbjorn, but he's still got more adventures ahead of him. Mm. Part 33, The Wise and the Good. So Ale's got his head, ugly though it may be. (laughs) <laughs> and the sword of his ancestors. Mm-hmm. Things are heating up. Now, what's he going to do with them? Well, here's the thing. When I said Ale had an adventure ahead, I I kind of... Um, uh, you lied. Why would you lie? I don't know. No. Uh, yes. Liar. A little. A little bit. A bit. Uh, he does have something <laughs> in mind, but he's not in a rush about it. He's essentially having a bit well, of a vacation. he's getting older. He's not in a rush about anything. Fair enough. And he's just spending some time with his buddy Athelstan. A little social yeah. call, which uh, really is, is it's really what he intended before he got stranded in Northumbria. So much for Asgard in that relationship, huh? <laughs> not interested in, uh, you know, starting a family, maybe? He's been there for 10 you know? years, Andy. 
It's a long time. It's a long no. time. And we just haven't heard about his kids yet, but he does have some. Well, presumably, Ao will be wearing long sleeves to hide the fact that he's given away the arm rings that Athelstan gave him. <laughs> uh, easy come, easy go, Andy. Uh, wealth is only worthwhile when it's given to friends. I just imagine him walking into court and Athelstan's <laughs> like, uh, Oh, oh, hello, Ao. Your arm's rather bare. Where the rings? Hmm? You made a big deal at well, the he party. Still, he still got the tan lines. <laughs> yes, he's got the tan lines. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd show off the guns. <laughs> I brought I brought you a ticket to the gun show, King. <laughs> didn't didn't want the rings to distract from the guns. They're in a chest. They're safe. Don't don't no, you worry. Why when you when you do Ale's voice? Why are you just doing well, sling blade? <laughs> That's because it's a default on this show. Is the uh, <laughs> the sling blade voice kind of is a catch all Viking voice? I told you I'm doing like Tom Waits if you're from Montana for Ale. Is that right? Because yeah, you know I don't think there's a big for. distinction between what you're doing and what I'm doing. But maybe maybe you know it's up to the listeners. They can there's more us. music in my tone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, you did you did say wealth is a, only worthwhile when given to friends, right? That, is that, that what I said? That's actually a pretty reasonable summation of the Anglo-Saxon attitude towards treasure. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I think Athelstan would understand. That's yeah. how treasure works. Yeah. Uh, and besides, there's more where that came from. We should say once more for people who aren't familiar with the historical period that the idea that Athelstan is still ruling England is definitely counterfactual. He's yeah. dead. He's been dead for a long time. Yeah. The historical Athelstan died two years after the Battle of Brunenborough, which uh, in this saga's timeline happened somewhere between 12 and 20 years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> Depending on which <laughs> chapter you're reading. Right. Uh, but for this saga's purposes, Athelstan has enjoyed a long and successful reign, and it's at least in part thanks to Ale. So Ale's expecting a friendly reception in England, maybe a couple of new arm rings, and he is not disappointed. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. He, he lives in luxury with the king. And Athelstan is still campaigning for Ale to settle in England. Mm-hmm. Um, he offers Ale lands, titles, wealth, a job, the king's friendship. Yeah, he, he's given away the kingdom. A piece of it, yeah. But And that's how kingship works, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, Ale isn't ready to settle down in England just yet. So instead, he's just living in Athelstan's household, enjoying the king's hospitality. Yep. And while he's there, Athelstan is visited one day by a young man named Thorstein Thorison. Right. Now, Thorstein is new to our story, but Ale actually already knows him. Uh, Thorstein's the nephew of Arnbjorn. Uh, he's the son of Arnbjorn's sister, Thora. She was married to a man named Eric the All-Wise, who was a wealthy, well-respected, and yes, wise man with uh, extensive mm-hmm. land holdings in eastern Norway. Uh, Thorsten is their only son. Yeah. Um, if you uh, look in my copy of Ale Saga, mm-hmm. what you will find is yet another genealogical tree of Arnbjorn's family at this particular yeah. chapter. Um, and and was is an operative word here. Uh, word has come from Norway that Thorstein's father has died mm-hmm. and that agents of the new king in Norway have seized Eric Allwise's lands. Mm-hmm. Thorstein, with the backing of his uncle Arnbjorn, has come south to ask for Athelstan's help and support to claim back his lands. Yeah, now, this bit is a little convoluted, but it really is Athelstan that Thorstein's coming to get help from. The fact that Ail's yes. at the court is is a factor, since Ail's not likely to let any nephew of Arnbjorn's go without his help. 
But King Athelstan mm-hmm. has a real influence over the new king of Norway because that king, as we said earlier, is Hauken the Good, who is also known as Hauken Athelstan's foster. He is the foster son of Athelstan. Yes, he is. And that mm-hmm. opens up all kinds of possibilities. Absolutely. We've seen a lot of this. Uh, if you are the foster son of a mm-hmm. powerful man, that comes with all kinds of extra bonuses. Um, which right. Which is part of why you'd want to foster your son to a powerful man. Yes, indeed. Now, Thorsten can ask Athelstan for help with his land inheritance. Yes. But, of course, we know another guy who's had some problems with claiming his inherited lands in Norway. You can almost see the dollar signs light up in Ale's eyes as this opportunity comes in front of him. I mean, that's both physiologically unlikely and weirdly anachronistic, but okay, I'll allow it. Uh, <laughs> you know, so you're right, a, it's physiologically very unlikely. Right, uh, so as Ail stumbles around with sudden, horribly disfiguring dollar signs in his eyes, he, oh, he arranges to escort Thorsten to Norway and pursue his own claims into the bargain. Convenient. Mm-hmm. So Ale is bound for Norway once more, both to resolve his own outstanding land claims and to try to repay the favors that Arnbjorn and his family have done for him. Mm-hmm. But you might be shocked to hear this. There's a bit of a problem. Is the problem that everyone in Norway hates him? Uh, no. Uh, well, mostly, yes. Uh, <laughs> but I mean that Ale's ship smashed on the rocks of the Northumbrian coast when he arrived in England last year, remember? Yeah, well, that is tricky. Uh, so what you're yeah. saying is that Ale needs to call in a favor with a friend. Maybe mm-hmm. a, a friend who has the resources of an entire kingdom at his disposal. I mean, that would be convenient if it were available. Sure. That's what I'm uh, getting at, yeah. Uh, and Ale does have such a friend, uh, a fellow named King Athelstan. Sure. Um, and Athelstan offers him a, a merchant ship. And it's not just a ship. It's This ship's hold is filled with wheat and honey and other valuable goods. So, so Appleton has once again given Ale a fortune to take with him. What a guy. I mean, everyone should have a friend like Appleton. John, you know how uh, King Alfred, the uh, Anglo-Saxon king, is known as King Alfred the Great? Mm-hmm. Well, not a lot of people know, but uh, King Athelstan is known as <laughs> King Athelstan. What a guy. What a guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just to cap that off, he sends Ale off with yet another offer to stay in England and be Athelstan's right-hand man. He offers Ale command of England's armies again, along with great revenues from land grants. Mm-hmm. Ale provisionally accepts these offers, but says he has to go home and he has to visit Iceland. He has to pick up his wife and he's got that Norwegian inheritance business to take care of first. So, yes, he accepts, but he'll be back soon. Right. And... At this point, we have to say that Ale is bordering on obsession. I mean, he's being handed a reasonable chunk of England, and he's still running back yes. to Norway to argue over these old lands. Uh, well, we he's a re- proud man. There you go. But we should remind everyone, this isn't even Ale's inheritance. Right? He's making another attempt to claim the inheritance of his wife, Asgard, from the family of her in-laws. Right. And Asgard's brother-in-law, Berg Onund, who Ale killed a few chapters back, our last episode— mm-hmm. Um, has a brother named Atli the Short, and Atli's now claimed the disputed land after his brother's death. Now, we'll be getting into that confrontation in our next episode, but uh, the, the dueling episode. Mm-hmm. Um, hint, hint. <laughs> but for now, Ale can rest in England until he takes another crack at claiming the land that he believes is rightfully his wife's and therefore also his. Right. He keeps talking about it as though it were his. 
Uh, it's very important to him to claim the money. I don't know if he cares mm-hmm. about the land, right? But the value of the right. land is what's important, and also just he's he. It's almost like he's interested in the. the I don't want to say fairness because Ale doesn't seem like a guy who's all no. about fairness. Well, he's, he's interested he in fairness justice. when it when it benefits him, right? It's- when it benefits him, yes, and and there's an injustice mm-hmm. in Norway that right. needs to be just justified, corrected, rectified. Right there, you it go. needs to be done better. Um, but I mean, he does uh, keep talking about this as though it were his land. Yes. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, for better or worse, richer and poorer and all that. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know. Sure. So your land well, is my land. Yep. This land is your land. This land is Ale's land. Uh, so while Ale and Thorsten are sailing for Norway, uh, I just want to take a second over this Athelstan stuff. Uh, quick spoiler, okay. this is the last time we're going to see Athelstan in this story. Uh, he's going oh, to no. die of natural causes 20 years ago while Ale's off traveling. <laughs> <laughs> so this really he is... He gets in the, uh, the, uh, the time-traveling right, war and right. uh, uh, remembers to die. Uh, so this is our last chance to really think about him. All right, but uh, why don't you make it quick? Uh, we just did a really long section, and <laughs> Ale's got a good wind at his back. Why don't we catch some of that? Okay. Uh, well, I think we've already mentioned that what we're seeing here is Athelstan being positioned as a counterweight to the Norwegian kings. Right? Definitely, His yes. generosity, his, his long memory for friends who have helped him, that's a real rebuke to the more mercurial kings of Norway. We we have talked a lot about kings, and it's, but it's been a while since yep. we did the... Uh, the king theme, and and you're absolutely right, and all of that is only heightened by having this visit right after the head ransom scene in Eric's court, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a bad king uh, juxtaposed with a good king, right? Um, but still, Athelstan's generosity it, it seems excessive, doesn't it? I mean, we're are we, we must be meant to understand that this is a kind of hyperbole, right? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, there's a tradition to this legend that Athelstan tended to offer large chunks of England up to friendly Vikings. Uh, remember, we saw a very similar story when we looked at the career of Rollo the Viking way back in uh, Saga mm-hmm. thing, Saga Brief 5. Athelstan supposedly offered half the kingdom to Rollo in exchange for Rollo's help in putting down a rebellion. Which is a pretty close parallel to Brunenberg, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like in this saga, that story takes place at a time when Athelstan wasn't actually on the throne. <laughs> also it true. was during a time when Athelstan's grandfather, Alfred the Great, or maybe Alfred's son Edward, would have ruled England. Right. Which all seems to suggest that Athelstan's reign, and especially his success in subduing the Scots and the Haberna Norse, they made him an outsized figure in the Scandinavian imagination. Um his reign defines the entire era of Anglo-Saxon history for them, so much so mm-hmm. that he's eclipsing the rulers before and after him. There's also, I mean, when I think about this saga, there's a simplicity to the treatment of the Anglo-Saxon king. Yeah. You've already got multiple Norse kings that you've got to deal mm-hmm. with. Do you want to further complicate it with the actual right. uh, line of English kings? Or do we want just this one representative foreign king who can be the embodiment of good kingship. Right. And if you if you know um, the history of the Anglo-Saxon kings, the period after Athelstan is not a glorious period in English royal history. Right? We have four, five, or six kings um, over the space of a few decades who are all collectively pretty awful, uh, not, not the greatest batch of figures. Wouldn't right. necessarily stick in the memory of a foreign writer three to four hundred years after the fact. 
right? Where Athelstan is very definitely leaving his footprint on history. Right. And being true to history in a saga like this, where King Athelstan serves serves a narrative function as a contrasting figure to the more corrupt or petty uh, Norwegian kings, um, you you don't want to complicate that with uh, the the reality of uh, equally corrupt and and vicious kings. (laughs) That's a good point. So Athelstan kind of emerges as this uh, symbolic Mm -hmm. figure. Right, right. Or has emerged because now we're going to leave him in our wake. Uh, well, we've been jawing about true. this. Ale and Thorsten and their crew of a dozen men have made it safely to Norway, where they take control of one of Thorsten's family farms in Oslofjord. Now, since they've arrived late in the season, they're a little light on provisions, but hey, Ale happens to have a ship packed with food and honey, and they're able to live in high style all winter. They're probably living very well. <laughs> There's really only one reason to be carrying a cargo load of honey back from England. Mead? Mead. Yeah, I wondered about that. Fermenting on my counter right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stands to reason. Yeah, Once you get the old mead brewing equipment out, it wouldn't be long before winter at the Oslofjord farm became a delightful series of drinking parties. Right. It's not a bad way to spend a winter. How is your, uh, your uh, how is your new meadery in Mississippi coming along? Uh, very well, actually. Um, I think you've seen, I, I posted a picture of the works to our Instagram account and uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's still bubbling away on the, the counter there. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, and you'd know all this yeah. if you were on social media, John. Yeah, I prefer to experience my mead the old-fashioned way, which is... Uh, Letting you brew it and then give me some. Well, another reason for you to travel down here to Oxford, John. <laughs> Not sure your meat is that good. Uh, well, you know, you haven't, you know, come <laughs> on down. I think you might find that it is. Um, anyway, so eventually the snow melts and the mead parties have to come to an end. Boo. While Ale and Thorstein pursue their legal cases. And that's where this story takes a surprising turn. Oh, yes. Uh, so... This new ruler in Norway, Halkin the Good, the uh, the guy who's taken over after Eric got kicked out. Uh, how, how did we? How did we not like delve deep into this whole thing? Well, I'm gonna. I want to talk about it a little bit right now. Uh, oh, but oh, thank goodness. It's, there's. I mean, the the saga itself treats it as a very kind of matter of fact sidebar of what happens. But I mean. Saga thing tradition is to take a moment, like a, a, a tiny moment, like How Can the Good took over, and turn it into like a, here's what How Can the Good is all about. Well, then allow, me to, allow me to treat you to that very digression that you're begging for, sir. Well, uh, let's go. So this this guy, uh, Hauken, he's he's a son of Harold Fairhair, just like his half-brother, Eric Bloodaxe. But that's mm-hmm. about all the two of them have in common. Well, I mean, their nicknames alone sort of suggest that, don't they? Yeah, and you can make certain assumptions about Hauken's character based on his name, although we should explain that Hauken is historically more than a bit questionable. Uh, He doesn't show up in the roles of Norwegian kings until more than 200 years after his supposed death in 960. Hmm. And at that point, he's mostly being associated with supposed early attempts to Christianize Norway. So the name The Good is really about his support for the expansion of the church. Yeah, it seems that way. Uh, but even with that context, we can still assume that Hauken will be a very different kind of king than his father or his half-brother. Not to mention the influence of Athelstan, his foster father, who we've already seen as a sort of walking ideal of open-handed kingship. So 
Hawkins should come off looking pretty good in this song. Exactly. And he's being sort of situated. We've got all these different connections to Harold Fairhair, to Eric, to Athelstan. And Hawkins is being set up as a fairly significant figure at the center of Mm -hmm. this story. Um, Now, none of that means he's going to be a pushover for Ale, though. He is still part of a family who have been in a feud with Ale's clan since, I mean, at this point, since before either Hawkins or Ale were born. And he's kind of set up as uh, an intelligent, a wise ruler. Sure. Um, he, he can probably see through Ale's uh, uh, shtick, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. And and that explains the difference in their receptions as well, mm-hmm. right? Ale and Thorstein travel north in the spring to the king's court at Trondheim uh, with 30 supporters, mostly gathered from among Thorstein's relatives. They present their petitions to the king. And, and, well, and, after, and, uh, and a letter and tokens from Hawkins' foster daddy, King Athelstan. Of course. And Hauken quickly decides in Thorstein's favor. Yes, he does. He grants the disputed lands to Thorstein and confirms Thorstein's inheritance of Eric Allwise's position in Norway as a landowner with a capital L. Sort of like an underchieftain to the king. Big deal. And uh, at this point, Ale, standing there, clears his throat meaningfully. Uh, well, he can hawk all the phlegm he wants. Uh, Hawkins not about to treat Ale with the same open hand. Well, I mean, actually, if we think about this encounter from Hawkins' perspective, it's not hard to see why. Uh, let's have a quick review of this feud at this point, shall we? All right. Well, to start, Hawkins' father, Harold, felt threatened and betrayed by Ale's uncle, Thorolf. And Thorolf came within three feet of killing him in battle. Mm-hmm. That's probably a mark against... Right. Scott Legrim, Ale's father, threatened to kill Harold, and Harold outlawed the entire family as a result. Uh, another mark against. Maybe. Uh, then, uh, Ale and... Maybe. Th- right. Uh, Seems like a definite mark against. <laughs> uh, so, at that point, it moves on to the next generation, right? Ale and Thorolf Mark II repeatedly returned to Norway in contempt of that family outlawry, uh, even marrying mm-hmm. into a prominent Norwegian family. Ale then killed numerous members of another prominent Norwegian family over that same inheritance dispute that he's now asking for Hawkins' help with. Hmm. And he killed King Eric's foster son, Frodi, and murdered Eric's actual son, Prince Ronvald, who, let's remember, was Hawkins' nephew. Several marks against there, if you're keeping <laughs> track. Um, yeah. A, can I say there's a bit of bad blood there? I think we can say there's an ocean of bad blood there. Uh, And against all that, Ale has what? Well, he has a letter from King Athelstan Uh and an appeal to Hawkins' sense of fair play. Pretty weak sauce. It's pretty weak, yeah. Yeah. It's ketchup and water, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we do have to consider that Hawkins himself overthrew Eric Bloodaxe. So, I mean, it's not like they're the closest of brothers. Okay. I mean, this is a claim for pretty huge tracts of land in Norway. But yeah, this is this is a lot to the the whole like bad blood. It's a lot to ignore. Yeah. And how can it's not in the mood to ignore all of that? Yeah. He points out that Ale's been at war with his family for a, a rather long time and says, you ought to be contented, Ale, if I don't involve myself in this matter at all. Well, you cannot keep quiet about this matter, King, because everybody in this land must obey your orders. I've been told you're making a code of laws for everyone in this country, 
and I'm sure you'll allow me to secure my rights just like anyone else. Hmm. As for my dealings with King Eric, well, I can tell you the last time I saw him, he told me to go in peace wherever I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, Ale, that's stretching the truth just a little, isn't it? Yes, (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Just a a wee small prevarication. Yeah. Uh, But Ale's not done. I offer my allegiance and service to you, Lord. Mm. I think you'll cross paths with King Eric again. And then you may feel that Gunild has had too many ambitious sons. Mm-hmm. Now that's a pretty loaded statement. Mm-hmm. Almost prophetic. Yes. Since Gunild, uh, which we discussed <laughs> several episodes ago, mm-hmm. she will later become known as Mother of Kings. Yeah, well, Ael may not have second sight, but he does have a pretty good eye for anachronistic knowledge. Uh, yes, he does. It's not surprising that he would know something like this a decade in advance. But that's not quite enough to sway Halkin. He says, You shall not enter my service, Ale. You and your kinsmen have carved too deep a breach with my family for that. So, I advise you to go back to Iceland and look after your inheritance there. Mm. For King Athelstan's sake, however, you will be left in peace here and allowed to seek justice and your rights because I know how fond Athelstan is of you. And amazingly, that's that. Ael has won the chance to pursue Asgard's inheritance one more time. And this time, he'll have a note from the king requiring that he be <laughs> dealt fairly with in Norway. Of course, that doesn't mean he'll win. Uh, it just means he'll be given a chance to make his case against Otley the Short, Bergonin's brother and the, the current mm-hmm. owner of Asgard's inheritance. Okay. I think on that rare positive bit of news for Ale, I think we can stop for now. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're we're going to leave Ale with a couple of big moments just ahead of him. He's uh, He's got his tokens from the king and he's headed to reclaim his lands. Mm-hmm. And if you like lawsuits and dueling and fights to the death, well, our next episode is definitely for you. Uh, so I, I think that's going to do it for now. We, we intended to answer some questions this time in our uh, <laughs> our little rune sack here but uh and we've got a small backlog we we need to work through here but right. uh, uh we will get to them soon as soon as we stop doing such long episodes and right. staying up uh, so late yeah and by the way no matter where you are in our 100 episodes we'd love to hear what you're thinking about uh we will try to yeah. come up with an answer to any question you ask on the understanding that the the answer may be just that's a damn good question <laughs> Yeah, I actually, I mean, I had prepared for you two questions that are not related to Ale Saga at all. Ugh. But, you know. Next time. Next time. John. Next time. Maybe. Yeah, next time should be a shorter one. So Mm -hmm. we'll we'll definitely do a couple questions next time. So if maybe you can trump the questions we've currently got, and I'll just, uh, you know, push you ahead of the the bunch. So send in your questions. Send us a message, a question, a comment. Um, we can be reached on most of our major social media. They're not our major sources. They're, they're, they're. Other people's. <laughs> we can be reached on most of the major social media platforms. Uh, for example, Facebook uh, at Saga Thing Podcast. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you can find us at Saga Thing Pod, and on Instagram where we are Saga Thing Podcast. And if you want to send an email, you can reach us at Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Or hey, you can stay up all night writing a poem about how wonderful we are, and then recite it to us in the morning. 
we won't oh. actually be there to hear it, but it's a lovely thought. And we'll let you leave with your head. There you go. All right. We'll be back soon with the first of our next hundred episodes in which we will cover Ale's newest attempt to regain his wife's inheritance and his adventures in the art of dueling to the death. John, do you think we'll be, uh, by our 200th episode, do you think we'll be done with the sagas <laughs> of the Icelanders? Uh, I like still to be think that through? our 200th episode will be our wrap up of the entirety of the family sagas before we embark Dude, on we a have brave 15 new adventure. more sagas to go through. <laughs> 15 sagas, you 100 episodes for 15 I sagas. I mean, who knows what we'll get involved with before then. Maybe we'll make it, maybe we'll try to get done by 150. I mean, if if it takes 200 episodes to get to 15, you should see the hate <laughs> that will be in my eyes for you at that but point. But there's so many other things that we want to get to. We really do want to get done with this at some point so we can get to some of the other traditions of the sagas. Which is why if you you've been wondering like where are all those saga briefs they promised? Well, <laughs> We're trying to finish these damn sagas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we'll eventually decide we need a break and we'll we'll put a brief or two out there. Uh, actually, you know, John, someone contacted me recently to say, hey, you know, Beowulf is really cool. Are you, you ever going to do something with Beowulf? I mean, we'll put it on the list. <laughs> it, it's on the list already. We owe a Greta and Beowulf one, but uh, right. I'm, I'm teaching well, that, uh, a class this uh, semester where we are going to be reading Beowulf, and uh, I thought maybe, maybe I could squeeze sure, a little sure. bit of podcast action Why in with that uh, preparation. Absolutely. So maybe. I look, you know, I look forward Christmas, to being disappointed yet again. You are a smart man, John. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. poetic yeah it was poetic oh it was lovely uh but it also means that ale who didn't really get along with his father you're gonna let me know you're done drinking right sorry my my dog is currently filling himself with water so he can go upstairs and pee on the rug which dog is that it's cuthbert Uh uh-huh uh that's what i thought (laughs) so it all it all ties together beautifully he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna go claim the upstairs as his territory that's right this is pee rug claimed (laughs) by cuthbert he's gonna call it cut Cuthbert's run. <laughs> <laughs>